All right. Well, good morning, RBC Nashville. Uh, regrettably, I am not there this morning. Um, I am in Birmingham uh, with my family, uh, but wanted to go ahead and record this Sunday school so we don't lose momentum and what is sometimes um, can be a challenging issue if you take uh, too long of a break. And so here I am digitally uh, to provide the next installment of the series here and uh, on congregationalism. So uh, before we get into it, let me pray, not least for myself, because it's very awkward teaching to a camera. And uh, and uh, I promise I'll do the best I can. Though. Let's, let's pause to pray with me uh, briefly as I pause to pray here on uh, about three o'clock on a uh, Thursday afternoon. God, we are thankful to be able to study the scriptures in the way we do, to have unprecedented access to them. We thank you for the picture that you've painted as a congregation, uh, in the congregation, as, as a people who wield the keys of the kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity of thought and mind as we work through some of these texts, and that this would inspire us um, to be better church members and to hold our really our office as a member in high regard. And we would wield the keys well. Give me grace in this technology. Pray that nothing I do would be distracting um, to your word and to the, the purpose of this particular lesson. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, if you recall last time we left off on Matthew chapter 16, and we were trying to answer the question, what are the keys? What is the exercise of the keys? And I said there were kind of four tips that clued us in, and then I offered a, a summary um, an a summary analysis of that. That is to be teased out as we go through some other passages, particularly Matthew chapter 18, where we'll be spending a lion's share of our time today. First, I said that the binding and loosing language very likely stems from Proto-Rovitic uh, interpretation of the Halakha, where something could be interpreted in the abstract, the what a law says, or to whom it applied uh, and how. And that whatever that Jesus uses leaves, instead of whomever, the neuter whatever, instead of the masculine whomever, leaves space for a what and a who. Number three, Matthew 18 gives us an example of the keys in use. And then finally, binding and loosing are opposites. So whatever we decide the keys are, it seems that to respect the imagery of the description there, because we know no one is going around carrying physical keys, um, it needs to be able to do both X and not X. It needs to be able to perform opposite functions. That seems to rule out historical interpretations of the keys and their exercise um, that are only single function, like church discipline, or that are dual function, but not opposites, like church discipline and preaching. Uh, because to whatever extent both of those things are involved in exercising the keys, they aren't opposites. Okay, I would say preaching is not in and of itself an exercise of the keys, although we're going to see that it is certainly related to that. So coming out of that, what I suggested is this, and I don't have it on the slide right here. I suggested that that binding and loosing with the keys refers to the authority to pass judgment and make public rulings, the authority to pass judgment and make public rulings on particular what's be doctrinal doctrines, confessions, professions of faith, and who's people claiming to believe the proper what and live in light of them. The authority to pass judgment and make public rulings on particular who's and what's on behalf of heaven. 
So the keys deputize the holder to render a public verdict on uh, a public verdict on what is the right confession and practice of the gospel and who is a true confessor, confessor in heaven's name. OK, that is what I suggested. Now, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 18, where we're going to see the keys uh, explicitly used. And this is a very, very important text uh, grounding the discussion here. So I hope you have a Bible because just trying to, to process what I'm saying, trying to just think about it in your head or something is not going to work. I'm just telling you right now it's not going to work. So open the, your copy of the scripture with me to um, uh, um, Matthew chapter 18. Make sure my slide comes up here correctly. Be there. It's not being there. Oh, there we go. Now they're all there. Let's go back here a little bit. There we go. Okay. So let me read Matthew chapter 18, and we're, we're going to start with 15. This is the famous church discipline passage. We're going to look at some other places in the passage, but primarily right here. It says, if your brother sins against you, talking to the apostles, which is going to come in uh, to be important in just a second here, in terms of how we understand what is, you know, how we understand what is said to the apostles being indicative of something that everyone should be doing and not just the apostles themselves historically. But if your brother sins against you, says Jesus to the apostles, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where there are two or three, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Okay. So uh, we see the keys at use here. We see, I think, very strong confirmation that it is not merely the apostles as apostles, but confessors in general built on the foundation of the apostles, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles, uh, who have both received the keys and we see the church is the one who exercises the keys here. So I want to make three primary observations germane to our discussion of congregationalism here in Matthew chapter 18. The first is that the church, you'll notice here, is the final appeal in judgment. Okay, there is no regional presbytery that gets appealed to. Okay, uh, there is no uh, bishop outside the church that gets appealed to, certainly not a, a Roman pontiff. It is the church. Now, let me let me answer the uh, the objection that is coming. It comes from certainly some of my own friends, and that is, well, Tyler, doesn't church just equal elders, or could it equal elders? In other words, you tell it to the elders, and elders handle church discipline because they represent the church. So what it doesn't mean is you actually go before the whole church with this. It, it just you know it means you take it to the elders. 
let me let me give three reasons to think that that is misguided. Three three uh, pieces of pushback to that. The first is that it just literally says church. It's it's the word ecclesia. It's difficult to understand if Jesus was trying to say church, how he could have been more clear about it. Okay, uh, if elders are what you're supposed to be taking them to, then um, then you get you have got to get that maybe from somewhere else in scripture and import that into here. Okay, and it's you know everyone does harmony to some a certain extent, but you just can't read elders into this. Um, as it is, you have to, if you're, or, or to rephrase, if you're going to understand this to be elders, you kind of have to take that theology from somewhere else. And we're trying to let this text, at least for now, just speak by itself. It seems to me, if you're honest, the text, if you let it speak by itself, um, clearly uh, suggests that it is the church who is the final appeal. Um, the second is that reading elders into the passage disrupts the numerical escalation that seems to be in there. So, look, it goes from one person going to a couple of people going, presumably, presumably that person going before the whole congregation of people, one, a few, the many. Elders seems to reverse that or at least keep it even one, a few, then a few doesn't seem to follow. It seems to break up the numerical es escalation that we see there. And finally, um, given the distinctively Jewish nature of Matthew's gospel, I mean, look, look at uh, verse 17. Let him be to you if he does not listen to the church as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, that's me and you or Gentiles, right? He's, this is talking to a Jewish audience. What's he saying? He's like, make them be like someone who is either a national traitor, considered a national traitor, be like a tax collector, or a Gentile, someone who's not a part of the covenant, someone who's not a part of the family, he's someone who is outside of the camp. This is a very, this is a Jewish audience. And here's the question right here in the, in Jesus's ministry, historically situated, is it likely that what they would have heard or thought was elders or even leaders when they heard the word ecclesia, which in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Old Testament is the word used primarily to describe the gathered assembly of Israel. He translates the Hebrew kahal, referring to the gathered assembly of God's people, would they not have heard that the people gathered together? What what what, what do you think? What, what would make you think a Jewish audience when they heard tell it to the ecclesia that they would think elders, local church elders? It's very difficult to tell a story there. So for those three reasons, I think that suggesting that reading that this can just be read as elders. Uh, simply is not handling the text carefully and results kind of from a larger framework that kind of gets imposed on this particular text. OK. So, again, the final court of appeal here, the final court of appeal in rendering that a particular what or particular who does not line up and making in the church making a judgment on it. OK, this particular person, their life. Their unrepentance does not line up with the what of the gospel and what it looks like to live in line of the gospel. The authoritative public ruling on that is made by the church. It's made by the church, not by a regional presbytery, not by a regional bishop, the ecclesia, the gathered body. And we still want to see that later in the passage, the gathered. OK, um, of course, the gathered church is the visible expression of the invisible church, the universal church. The gathered church is the visible expression of that. Okay, second, so we have first church is the final appeal and judgment. Second, though, is the church exercising the keys. 
the church exercising the keys. That happens in verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you, and it's a plural you, you can't see that in English, but it is. Truly, I say to you all, whatever you all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That just is the exercise of the keys. Back up to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and what are you... And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, Matthew 18, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It is the keys being exercised in church discipline. They are the congregation, the church, is, according to my suggestion earlier about what the keys were in their exercise, they are making a public ruling in heaven's name on a particular who and a what of the gospel. This person is who, meaning a particular individual, the, the, their lifestyle, because of their underpinnings, does not line up with what we understand the gospel to mean. And therefore, we have to put them out of the camp. Now, these are perfect participles in the Greek. Because someone's wondering, like, what exactly does that even mean? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. M many of you probably have a superscript in your copy of the scripture. And if you go down there, you will see it translated as a, a perfect participle, which it actually is. So uh, um, if, you, if I go down the bottom of mine, it says, or shall have been bound or shall have been loosed. And that is literally what it says. That sounds awkward in English, and so they gloss it here. But it's saying that what you will be what you will do will have already been done. Okay? Will have already been stamped for approval. And I'm gonna call this the pre-authorization principle. When this kind of thing happens, when this kind of key wielding exercise happens in someone, the, the people of God are gathered together and they are rendering a verdict on a particular what and a who on behalf of heaven's name the public decision there they already have pre-authorization to use the keys in that particular way that's what it's saying it will have already been done it will already have been done um, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see a little bit more of that uh, something related to it further down in the passage okay um, again, same thing in Matthew 16, those perfects, it's the same thing. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed uh, in heaven. Okay, you go down, you can look at your superscript number for there as well. Shall have been bound, shall have been loosed. It's, re it's referring to something that has an action in the past that has enduring effects in the present. And what I'm suggesting it is the pre-authorization of God to act in this way of binding and loosing and declaring a what and a who, either to include someone as a part of the camp or to exclude someone as a part of the camp. And that, that that's the, the opposite functioning there. We see the church discipline one here, the membership one is second. So I'm suggesting that in the most general terms, the way the church exercises the keys functionally is through its discipline and its membership, because that is the positive and negative of declaring a what and a who publicly on behalf of heaven as the gathered body. Okay, that's what I'm suggesting. Okay, finally, third point to make here is 
the gathered church is the basic unit for exercising the keys. The gathered church is the basic unit for exercising the keys. In verse 19, we read, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So here we are. This is every small group leader's favorite verse or two to take out of context, right? Sorry, I shouldn't chew ice. It's really bad best practice. I'm used to it while I'm working. But anyways, hey, you know, should we cancel community group tonight? Almost no one can come. Hey, if two or three people are gathered. You know, we should be able to pull this off. Um, all right, so so let's let's try to handle this very carefully and make some observations. Okay. I would suggest that the number one uh, uh, perhaps the most important thing to understand about whatever we see, whatever we're going to conclude here is the again I say to you. Again. Something is being told to us again. Well, what was just told to us? What was just told to us? Well, what was told to us is that when someone is, when the church, the gathered body of believers publicly recognizes that a, a, a makes a public authoritative declaration on a what and a who, that that will have pre-authorization on behalf of heaven as an ex, as a legitimate exercise of the keys. So what we are, what we should be expecting as we think through whatever is in Matthew 19 and 20 has to be qualified and in the context of, again, I say to you. So we're going to get some kind of repeat. We're expecting some kind of retelling, even if it's from a different angle, of what we just heard. Very, very critical. Um, because that helps us know, at the very least, what is not happening. Okay, we don't we're not we're not being told about random prayer requests. All of a sudden, we didn't go from a passage about exercising the keys to a passage about random prayer requests for someone's mom to get better or for whatever the case may be. OK, um, we didn't we didn't go from a church a passage about exercising the keys in church discipline uh, to a passage about how to lead a, a, a community. group. Right. Again. I say to you, I'm going to repeat some essentially the concept that we just went over the pre-authorization principle with this principle of escalation, rendering a public verdict on behalf of heaven. OK, um, I do think we can have a, a decent amount of contextual confidence about what the two or three is here. And there's a lot of I think a lot of people ask questions about this and, and, it's, and it ends up being a little bit sloppy. Um, I think that um, I think that the asking in 19 is essentially a restatement of the pre-authorization principle in 18. Okay, and we're going to get to the content of the ask in just a second. Um, but notice where it says, "If two of you so just pardon the two, just." Uh, Pass on the two for one second. Hold on to that thought. If two of you agree on earth about anything, not a particularly helpful translation. The word there is pragmatos, where we get the word pragmatism. It's just a matter. It really is. If two of you agree on earth about any matter. Well, that's an interesting word because that is a word that comes up 
in in Koine Greek in judicial context where a verdict is being rendered. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, it is the word that is used when Paul writes, when one of you has a grievance, which is a matter, when one of you have a, has a grievance, a matter against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Talking about making judgments on things within the church. So that fits very nicely contextually. This isn't about anything in the world. This is about any particular matter that's being adjudicated in the case of church, in a, in a case of a church discipline, a particular what or a particular who that's being discussed. So the vocabulary fits and the context fits nicely. If any of you agree on any matter they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And again, I'm saying that it will be done for them by my Father in heaven is a repackaging of the whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, that's how you can know the Father in heaven is going to answer the request because it already has pre-authorization. Okay? Uh, what they're doing already has pre-authorization on behalf of heaven when they come together publicly as a gathered body to authoritatively wield the keys of the kingdom. And um, and so it, 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 it almost seems like an answer to a question, honestly. Um, yeah, it, it will be done for them. Will, will it be done for us? Yes, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Why? Because what you're going to do, what you bind uh, on earth shall be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. They seem related. They seem that one seems to flow out of the other, okay? But you might ask, what is the ask here? Um, if two of you agree on earth about any matter they ask, um, well, if the response of the Father here is a repackaging of the pre-authorization principle, um, we would likely we would we we would likely expect, in light of how the verse is introduced. That what they're asking is that when they come together, that this is not just um, a few individuals agreeing on something, sharing their opinion or acting out of earthly unity. But the verdict rendered would be a legitimate exercise of the keys. OK, that it would be a bona fide public declaration on the behalf of heaven. Now, that helps us understand why does two mentioned and then two or three. OK, so presumably you have I mean. Presumably you have two people agreeing on a matter of a particular, of a, of a third who, right? Um, they're agreeing together on a particular case, if you will, two people agreeing against Tom or John or Susie or Sally over here, who is not walking according to the gospel. Why does it mention two? And then down in the verse 20, why does it mention two or three? And what I want to suggest here is that the two or three agreeing and gathered of verses 19 and 20 refers to the church exercising the keys in verse 17. With two or three being the minimum number of confessors that can constitute a church. Okay. Um, two or three is important because it also invokes the Deuter Deuteronomic law on the requirement to render a judicial verdict. It's also the same requirement to bring an entertain a, a charge against an elder, if you remember from, from that part of our series. And then verse 20 provides a theological basis for 19, which almost reads as an answer to a question as well. For where, ha for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, if we only got three people, can we wield the keys? 
if we've got three people but no elders, can we wield the keys? Yes, because the power and presence of Christ is among them. That's the minimum. Now, I said the difference between a small group, a, a small group or a Bible study of Christians in a church is polity. Okay. Um, but but that's what I understand in context. It means to gather in my name. It doesn't matter if it's Christians. It means we are gathering together as the church, because that, that's what the context is. The gathered body of Christ, the church, in, in verse 17. And that the two or three refers to the minimum number of people that you'd have to have to constitute a church. They can get together and gather in Jesus' name to bind or loose or pray. Knowing the Father will hear because Jesus is present among them and has given them authority to wield the keys. Okay, listen to what Lehman says here. This is instructive. He says, two or three can gather in Jesus' name to bind and loose and to pray because Christ has given them his authority. Christ's presence here isn't so much a mystical fog hovering in the room where Christians are gathered. Rather, the language of his presence is acting in parallel to the deputized language of verses 18 and 19. Is already bound in heaven. Ha has already been bound. Is already loosed in heaven. That's that shall have been bound language. It will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. Okay? Seems like uh, one, again, flows out of the other. This is what Christ's presence signifies, that the assembled individuals are acting with the authority of heaven, that heaven hears and that the nations should take notice. He says, neither the two nor the two or three refer to a subgroup within the church, like verse 16 clearly refers to a subgroup. So look back down with me, verse 16, but if he does not listen to him, take one or two others along with you. That clearly refers to a subgroup within the church. Down here, the two or three, the, the two or the two or three refer to the church being the minimum number. Why is this? Lehman makes it very clear. To say that they do so, that is to say, to say that this refers to a subgroup here down in 19 and 20, suggests that Jesus has decided to put his name and reputation on the line when a church discipline process reaches the second of a four-step process. Aside from the arbitrariness of seeing Jesus personally engaging the process of step two, it also foments the possibility of division. What if the church in step three repudiates the charge brought by the two or three witnesses in step two? Which side speaks for Jesus and for heaven then? The same problem attends the suggestion that two or two or three refers to some other subgroup in the church, like a small group. If indeed verses 18 through 20 invoke the authority of heaven for the sake of something as significant as church discipline, granting any group of two or three people in the church this deputized authority is a recipe for tearing the church asunder. One small group can pit itself against another, each claiming to have the presence or deputized authority of Christ with them. Friends, I know you think we should excommunicate Joe, but our small group prayed about it. And since these verses say that if I pray and speak, we have the authority of heaven. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of emphasize that wrong and it makes sense. And since these verses say that if we pray and speak, we have the authority of heaven. It is a Protestantism run amok that makes the basic unit of church authority something smaller than the gathered congregation. Okay, so verse 20, the two or three gathered in my name. 
the small group leader's favorite passage here does come in the context of church discipline, which is what everyone's quick to, you know, remind people. But I'm, but I would suggest that actually it comes in the context of something more fundamental than church discipline. It comes in the context of wielding the keys, authoritatively exercising the keys of the kingdom. And it is the church, the gathered body of Christ, um, who is doing that. Okay. So in summary, I have a little summary here. By the way, my notes are on this screen. That's why I keep looking over there. I'm not getting distracted. It's, it's very awkward to, to try to look at a camera and then look at your notes way over here. So here we see, this is what I'm going to say. Here we see the gathered church, not elders, not a presbytery, not bishops appointed by apostolic succession, wielding the keys of the kingdom and authoritatively making a public declaration on behalf of heaven that an unrepentant sinner, a who, does not align with the what of the gospel and living in light of it, and therefore must be publicly reckoned of outside the church. The secondary point here is that this use of the keys by the gathered, gathered church that bottoms out in a two or three confessor minimum properly arranged has, has the pre-authorization on behalf of heaven in rendering such verdicts with Christ's presence among them as they use the keys. And so unless there is some obvious duplicitousness or mishandling, God will back the church's declaration over that person's life in the final judgment in the absence of repentance. God will back the declaration of that church, the public rent, the public um, declaration of that church will match final reality unless there has been some kind of horrible mishandling or that person repents, which is, of course, what we want to see in church discipline. OK. All right. So I know that's a lot. There's a lot there, but it's a very foundational passage. The church is the final appeal and judgment. The church exercising the keys and the gathered church is the basic unit for exercising the keys with two or three being the minimum. So Matthew 16, giving of the keys, Matthew 18, particular explicit use of the keys. Now let's turn in the New Testament to some other passages to look at where key wielding activity seems to be happening, starting with Galatians chapter one. Turn there in your copy of the scripture with me to Galatians chapter one. You're going to see something that is absolutely fascinating with regards to identifying both a what and a who. And this is the congregation given responsibility to discern false teachers and teaching of the gospel. Not the elders of the churches in Galatia. Listen to this. Paul, writing to the churches in the region, says in verse six, look down with me. I am astonished. So he's a, we know he's astonished. What is he astonished by? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the gospel, uh, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So you have teachers who are distorting the gospel. Okay, they're changing the what particular who's who are declaring a distorted what. So what does Paul say? He says, appeal to the regional elder. No, that's not what he says. He says, go. He says, why aren't you elders doing something more? The, the Galatian elders. No, that's not what he says. He said, there's a presbytery down the road who can help adjudicate these disputes. No, that's not what he says. Listen to what he says in verse eight. He says, even if we, even if we, Paul himself, 
his companions, people with him, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a contrary gospel to the one you received, let him be accursed. So you gotta gotta appreciate the weight of this. Paul is saying, listen, I taught you the gospel. You understand the what of the gospel. And I'm astonished that uh, that you are turning, it seems, to you are falling into some errors here, as we'll see in the larger letter of Galatians. Um, but let me tell you something. I, I, I have a confidence level that you understand the gospel so much that if someone comes back and says, oh, that's close, but like this is actually this is but you got this part wrong. He says, if I come back and start changing the story up a little bit. Well, guys, I know you said that, but but you misunderstood. It's actually this. If an angel from heaven shows up and said, hey, you got that's actually that's actually not right. He says, let that person be accursed. Y'all are responsible. You have the ability. He clearly thinks they have the ability because he's astonished that they're not doing it. He clearly believes that they have the ability and responsibility to look at someone, a teacher, an angel of God himself, and, and, and render a verdict as the church. This is directed to the church here, right? To the churches, doesn't say anything about the elders. Doesn't say anything why the elders aren't anything about why the elders aren't stepping up. Doesn't say anything about ask the regional presbytery. Doesn't say anything about that. It's directly to the church. And he says, if someone comes to you saying that you got it wrong, or they said, uh, well, this is this is uh, slightly off. He says, no. You have the ability and the authority to judge the faithful what of the gospel so be about it including if i come back and start changing the story that's how much confidence he has that's how much ability they have that's how much clarity they have around the gospel that's how much clarity they have around the gospel and it ends up that there are a variety of reasons they're turning to um a different gospel that gets laid out in galatians that doesn't necessarily have to do um well, actually, I won't go into that. But Galatians chapter one, super, super, I think an amazing text, if I'm honest, about the church's authority and responsibility to discern uh, true and false teaching from purported leaders, including apostles, including angel from heaven. That is the kind of clarity with which we possess the gospel and the kind of responsibility we have for making sure that it's taught faithfully. Okay. Oh, I didn't hit the slide. Sorry. Right. Everyone's still probably hopefully turned to Galatians 1. So the keys here being required to use by the church, discerning false teaching. Let this person be accursed if someone's coming back and doing this. Let this particular who be accursed because they're per, they are proclaiming an incorrect what. You have the responsibility to discern that. Pretty weighty. It's a, it's a very weighty task given to the congregation, the churches. The churches of Galatia, verse 2. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to see 
Another church discipline passage, although it is used, the keys are used here differently. In chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Paul says, it's actually reported there's a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, a couple interpret possible interpretations of what that means, but it's not good. It's egregious public sin, uh, meaning that everyone knows about it. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, it may sound like what he's saying is over. Why is that not enough? Before you continue on the passage, why does there have to be anything else after what Paul just said for that man to be gone? Someone can just knock on his door. Hey, bud, you're out. You're out because of this lifestyle. Goodbye. We're going to make, you know, we'll tell everyone for you. That's not what happens. Listen to what Paul says, continuing on in verse three. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And he's just revealed the spirit of his thought. It's not some metaphysical spooky, not sending his soul there on vacation. Okay, he's there in spirit. He's just communicated the spirit of his thought. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And so verse four, critically, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. So we have, sounds very similar to the end of Matthew 18, doesn't it? The assembled body, the gathered body with the power and presence of Christ utilizing the keys. When you are assembled in the name, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so here Paul doesn't even consider his own direction as the final step in the actual practical process. He says this is what needs to happen, but there's a process here. We have to wield the keys the right way. Think about that. That's, that's important. That's pretty, that's pretty serious. He clearly has a high regard for the process here of wielding the keys correctly. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord and the power of Jesus Christ is there, then that is, the, that is the moment where a congregation is able to authoritatively wield the keys and it not be a group of just disparate uh, individuals or a small group or a bunch of Christians. There is a corporate power. There is a corporate unity, a corporate ability to exercise the keys and speak authoritatively on behalf of heaven as the gathered body. And in this case, again, we have an example of doing that in church discipline. OK, again, nothing about, you know, have a closed door meeting. Have a closed door meeting with the elders and they say, hey, Jack, you've got to go um, talk to the, the regional apostle or something. None of that. It's the church when you are gathered together and assembled together in the assembly. OK, really critical. First um, Corinthians six, I would say, is not. Uh, that's the next one. Where's my advance here? How am I doing on time? I've got, I think I have about five minutes. If I looked at the clock correctly. Um, the use of the keys by the church in resolving disputes, I would say that this is a, a, a bit of a softer, this is more of an implication. This one is not quite as cut and dry as the ones we have looked at thus far, but it's still relevant. Okay, it's okay to admit that it's not quite as, doesn't have quite as much explicit firepower, but you can see why I included it in here. So apparently there are disputes, there are grievances, there are these matters. First, uh, we actually talked about that when we were talking about the two or th uh, two people agreeing on anything. The matter, um, it's the same word used here. When one of you has a matter of grievance against another, 1 Corinthians 6, 1, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try these trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them? Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? So instead, what they're doing is they're going outside of the church. But brother goes to law against brother and that before believers. Now, we don't know the precise nature of the offenses here, but clearly there are some perceived wrongs that are happening that, and they're not being able to be resolved. Someone's saying, this person did this. They owe me this. Uh, it could be a, a property dispute. Um, it, it could be something about money, whatever the case may be. There are perceived wrongs that are happening in the church. People are pointing the finger and accusing other people of not walking in light of the gospel, at the very least. You're wronging me, and you're not repenting. Okay? You see kind of why I'm selecting this. Something wrong has happened. And he's saying, listen, why are you appealing outside of the church to this? Is there, and notice he doesn't say, please go to your elders and let them just render a verdict. Right? Can it be that there's no one among you? Look out on your congregation. Is there none of them? And I'd say, can, there, is it, can it not be that one of your elders doesn't have enough wisdom to adjudicate this dispute? That's not what he says. He says, surely there is someone among you wise enough to settle a dispute. So you don't have, to. in other words, congregations apparently in cases like this um, don't need, don't require in order to resolve the dispute appealing to something outside. In this case, it's them appealing outside to uh, unbelievers. But the general principle would seem to follow as well in the absence of other considerations, that, that there doesn't need to be a higher appeal to something outside, something hierarchical. You don't need to appeal to a higher church, the church in Rome, to pronounce a judgment on how the people in the church at Corinth are doing. And he's holding the church at Corinth responsible for adjudicating these disputes. Um, finally, let's look at this just real quick. 2 Corinthians 2.2. 2 Corinthians 2.2. Turn there with me. Um, and so he's talking, he's coming out talking about his painful letter. Oh, I need to advance it so you can see. 2 Corinthians 2.2. Um, so he's talking about, yeah, I made up my mind, starting with chapter two, not to make another painful visit to you. Um, he talks a little bit about this. Verse four, I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Stephen did a great job preaching um, this text, explaining it. He says in verse five, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, and there's talking, there's debate about who this person is, but apparently someone has been under church discipline. There's discussion. Is this the dude from 1 Corinthians chapter 5? People disagree. It's not clear that it matters for our purposes here, but someone has been put under church punishment, church discipline. And so what Paul says is, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him so that it may be overwhelmed or he may be overwhelmed by 
excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Obviously, this is this is a supposing this person is repenting and he's saying, listen, you don't keep this person outside of the church and you don't keep withholding fellowship with them. This person turns, not just saying I'm sorry, but when they turn, they're walking on a new path or on the right path. I want you to restore them. But notice how the punishment was carried out here. Okay, It doesn't say that the punishment by the elders it doesn't say the punishment that was by the bishop the regional bishop, the presbytery, the punished by the punishment by the majority. Apparently, there was a group and there was something like, and even though you cannot escape the language of, there was a group of folks, there was some kind of vote. Some people perhaps didn't disagree, but majority concluded that this person's what and who weren't cutting it. And this, therefore, this person is outside of the church. This person, when this person repents, Paul says, you should forgive and comfort this person or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Yeah, if I'm repenting and people are saying, sorry, you messed up too bad for forgiveness, you lead to despair. He says, don't do that. What the majority rendered in the decision as they exercise the keys um, has done its work, presumably, because this person's asking for forgiveness. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort this person. So again, the, the point here in including the second Second Corinthians two passage is that punishment by the majority seems to squarely locate authority to wield the keys, particularly in the matter of identifying a what and a who with the congregation. All right, I am out of time. I appreciate uh, your attention. I know it's probably been hard. I apologize for looking around and. Uh, trying to navigate two screens, my Bible. I know it's a little awkward. Thank you. Um, I love you guys. I miss you all. And uh, hope I, I do hope this is helpful. Please let me know any questions you might have. Send me a text. Send me a Marco Polo. I'm happy to interact um, uh, with any of your uh, questions and comments. And uh, certainly look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Let me pray for you. And uh, I'll hop off of here. God, thank you for um, this time, thank you for this technology that makes this possible. Thank you for these people that I love, that I cherish, and that I pray to shepherd well and wisely. And pray that their service, uh, that you would be um, powerfully present among them with the power of Christ, and that um, you would give Stephen words to boldly proclaim the gospel as he does week after week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Love you guys. We'll see you.